Within Transformation Plans, funding has been provided to help people get the help they need when and where they need it. This works by the NHS and third sectors working together to improve access and transition. Lived experience professionals, carers and mental health professionals are joining together to help make this happen. This is part two of the Transformation Podcasts. Phil has a background as a, G- as a GP and clinical director for mental health transformation in London. Kathleen and Claire, and then also Danny and Mina, are sharing their own lived experience. Please be aware some of the conversation may be triggering to some listeners. Hello, my name is Phil Moore. I am a GP by background, and I am doing quite a lot of work around mental health. Uh, In particular, I'm the clinical co-director for mental health for London uh, as part of the Healthy London Partnership. And we are doing a lot of work around complex emotional needs. We recognize that people with complex emotional needs are by very definition those who need quite a significant and specific input to really help and support them. Equally, As much as they find difficulties with those, so professionals often find difficulties in really managing people with complex emotional needs effectively and with compassion and empathy. So we've set out to look at what can we do in the community to improve the lot of those with complex emotional needs so that they can get proper access to good interventions. So if we can split that down into one or two areas, uh, and just have a brief look at those as, as an introduction to what we're doing. One of the big asks of the long-term plan is to increase access to services for those with complex emotional needs. And as we've already said, those with complex emotional needs have difficulty in accessing because often the services aren't set up to cater entirely to the kind of needs that they have, and many professionals find difficulty in understanding how effectively to provide that access for those with CEN. So one of the things we're looking at is working with those with CEN so that we can understand better how we can make services more accessible to them so that they can get the kind of help and support that they need. And we're wanting to listen carefully, wanting to understand the issues that arise so that we can effectively make that access better. The flip side of that coin is that the professionals who are going to be providing a lot of those services and the access will need training to understand better how that they how they can deal with those with complex emotional needs. It's not straightforward. It's something that does need understanding and training. And sometimes the experience of professionals hasn't been good. They've, they've got it wrong. They haven't managed it well. And It's often led to quite tense situations with their patients. So what we want to do is to have effective training for the professionals so that they have a better understanding of both the needs of those with complex emotional needs and how they can be effective in meeting those needs and enabling the access to them for those with CEN. That's not straightforward, and we are designing those training packages so that they can be used in a flexible way for professionals throughout the system. Once somebody with complex emotional needs has managed to get into contact with professionals and with services, one of the things that they are really looking for is a good assessment of where they're at. And one of the things that they're asking for is don't concentrate on a diagnosis, 
but more on what are the person's needs and what are their requirements at presentation so that they can get the support and help that they need more than simply having a diagnosis. So one of the things we're looking at is how that assessment can become consistent across all practitioners, how it can become consistent across, across all providers, so that those with complex emotional needs have a, uh, a, a consistent offer when they come to assessment and they know that they can trust those things that they're said at that assessment and also that that assessment is transferable between different providers so they don't have to simply go through that whole process over and over again as they move through different providers for different aspects of their help and their support. So assessment is a big area that we need to be covering. And finally, we need to look at what are the interventions that are effective with those with complex emotional needs. There is evidence base for this, but the evidence base doesn't necessarily cover everything yet. And there's still a lot of debate about what uh, are the most effective interventions that should be used with those with complex emotional needs. There is also an increasing evidence base for mentalization therapy. Uh, and that is having an increase in place to play to play and also a lot of other therapies that are beginning to create a, an evidence base that are useful to use. But what we want to use is also the experience of those with lived experience so that we can understand what their experience is of these various therapies. And we can begin to tailor the therapy specifically to individuals rather than simply saying, here's a package that you have to go through. That's not a straightforward process. It will take time, but there's a lot of work going into trying to tailor packages of therapy for specific individuals to meet their needs, particularly where they've got those complex emotional needs. So overall, what we're trying to do is to personalize the uh, access and intervention for those with CEN so that they really do get a good experience of the therapy and the interventions that are available. As I said, that's going to take time. That isn't going to happen overnight. But we're very hopeful that the involvement of our colleagues with lived experience is going to help us formulate and create a much better service in the future going forward. And we're hopeful that that will be very beneficial to many people who live every day with complex emotional needs. We also hope it will be beneficial to professionals so that they are able to provide much better and more professionally satisfying interventions for those that they come across. Hi everyone, my name is Danny. Um, I will be hosting this podcast alongside Mina, who you will hear from in a moment. I am a lived experience practitioner for the Healthy London Partnership Transformation for Emotional and Complex Needs. Um, and I work on the communications team, hence why I am conducting uh, this podcast. So lovely to meet you all. Hi everyone, I'm Mina. Um, I wear many hats, um, so to speak. Uh, I am a researcher. I do deliver training for the transformation program in East London and I'm also a writer. Uh, really good to meet you all and I hope that I can kind of lend my lived experience in sort of, uh, asking these questions and starting a conversation about something I feel really strongly about. Good to meet you all. Hello, um, my name's Claire. Um, I'm a lived experience practitioner trained. 
Um, and I'm also under Healthy London Partnership um, Complex Emotional Needs Transformation Programme. Um, I'm really excited to be here and hopefully give you the benefit of some of my uh, personality disorder expertise. So thank you. Good evening. I'm Kathleen. Um, I'm very excited to be part of this podcast. I'm a carer from Brent and uh, with a particular interest in personality disorders. Um, I I've done a number of things, you know, worked on different studies and or research studies and part of the Healthy Living Partnership transformation team. Um, And yeah, and stuff with my own trust, um, CMWL. Increasing the numbers of people accessing services is a big ask in the long term plan. So the question I put to you is, what has been your experience of access and what, given your experience and knowledge of other people's experiences, would you see as the must do's in this area? Okay, can I start? Yes. Um, So just to say there's so much to cover. Um, My experience of access has been so problematic. I've had definite access around um, response to being in crisis and response to being uh, sometimes psychotic. But in terms of access for having experiences, symptoms of personality disorder, it has been a completely different story. Um, I've been um, discharged from psychiatric hospital with no explanation or no help directed towards my personality disorder diagnosis. Um, and when I've been moving in some cases between um, different areas of London, I've fallen through the gap. So again, I've had to wait a good six months before I'm referred to a community mental health team. Um, when I was diagnosed, the diagnosis was never explained to me properly. I felt very stigmatised and traumatised by that. So overall, my experience of access has been really negative. So what good things can I say? There have been some services, um, for example, the women's service that's now closed in Croydon and also the sun service that is also based in Croydon and other areas of London. I think Lewisham as well is starting up there. That has been such a positive um, um, open door policy service. You go there, you're um, allowed entry. It doesn't matter. If you're really in crisis, they speak to you one to one and give you the help that they can. If you're able to participate in the group therapy, you can. You're encouraged to do a wellness action plan, take responsibilities of your triggers and risks and just be really supportive to other people and yourself. And it's no specifics on diagnosis with the Sun Group. You can attend, um, you know, when you're in crisis is kind of in inverted commas and there's no kind of labelling. I know that in some of the transformation plans, there's an aim. Excuse me, to see someone within 28 days. But personally, I think that we should be aiming to see someone within 24 hours because it's best, especially with personality disorder, things can really um, spiral very quickly out of control. Um, and if someone's not getting the support they feel they need, they may jump to other like self-harm, substance misuse and really dangerous behaviours. So for me, it should be that we're seen within 24 hours. And also, can we please have a system where we can self self-refer? And if we're not confident on online, can we have a system where we can phone someone up and they can do it for us, the registration? Um, and I do think that crisis cafes and recovery spaces are really good at identifying the need um, for access. So I think that's all I've got to say about that. Well, that was great, Claire. That was really helpful, definitely. Um, Kathleen? 
Do you have something? Um, well, I've I've had some of the same experiences as a carer. Um, when my daughter was first diagnosed, I had to research to find out what exactly borderline personality disorder was and is. Um, no one ever asked us what happened, wanted any background information. Um, and I have to say, um, my kids, my kids are actually, um, their ethnic origin is, um, the West Indies. Um, my father was Jamaican and their dads are, and, um, they're darker skin than, 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 than me. And, um, the, the answer to their problem was usually, um, the criminal justice system. So access has been a huge problem. And that's why I mention it. Also, it depends where you are. There seems to be a postcode lottery. I've found some fantastic work over the past 20 years that goes on in um, Ensun, which, which is um, sort of South London and um, Oxford. Um, but not really until now, during this transformation period, not really any any service um, in London and particularly um, northwest London. Also, there's the individual the individual bits like the substance abuse for years it was a oh this is a substance abuse problem or drug and alcohol problem um no this is a mental health problem and, the, and they're going to and fro not only the revolving door of services but also the going to and fro between services because no one wanted to take it on um there was a you know a stigma and there was also a behavioral issue and nobody could tell me about borderline rage so um We've mentioned understanding of the diagnosis. Um, it would be nice to see some of the skills taught, like emotional regulation skills. Just to add quickly, I think um, transitions is really important and intensity of need. So some people will really need something one day, but the next day they might not or the next week they might not. So it's really important to um, have like a matrix, a flexible service where people can be seen according to how they what their needs are and that they're supported through transitions like moving from one supported housing setting to another um, or one area to another that needs to be because people just if they're not supported throughout a transition, Transitions that can just cause, you know, a lot of stress and hardship. Definitely, I agree totally. Thank you for that. I think I was just thinking while um, Kathleen was speaking um, in regards to, like, you know, substance misuse, and I think you also mentioned it as well, Claire, like um, you taking, you know, substances. And there was kind of this question that I always used to, to ask is. Um, People tend to say, well, you've got this because you're smoking too much cannabis. Oh, you've got this because, you you know, you drink all the time. And that's the reason why you are the way that you are. And I think, could we not also look at it that people like the mental health condition came before the substance misusing? Because I know a lot of people that take certain substances, let's say smoking cannabis, but they weren't that that came after it. They use that to maybe help meditate or calm them down and things like that. And I guess when they do present in services um, and they're asked, do you take any substances, you know, recreational drugs? And to be fair, I reckon 90% of people may just say, um, no, they don't, um, because they don't want to be labelled with that's the reason why you act and behave the way you do. Um, so it's kind of what came first, the substance misuse or the, the mental health diagnosis. So it's always going to be something later on to have a bit of a debate about, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. 
And I've got, I've got, um, I've got, I always think if I see someone that, that, um, drinks a lot or smokes a lot or whatever, I'll always think what happened to you when it's more than a habit, when it's more than a social thing, my, my immediate thought is what's happened to you because, you know, um, so you look at it that way. But, um, also when you were talking, actually what I thought of Danny was that, um, the, the substance misuse is actually a symptom. Mm. So that that's mm. why even I mention it, because, you know, you have to have five out of nine symptoms to get a diagnosis in the first place. One of which obviously is self-harm. Um, that's one of the most telling ones. But, um, yeah, substance. And also, mm. I find that with both of mine that have this diagnosis, in both cases, where the relationship breaks down, that's a trigger. Okay. Um, there's been some really interesting discussions so far. Um, and on the same kind of uh, focus of access, um, you know, I am a British Bangladeshi Muslim woman. And I know from experience that mental health services aren't the most accessible and that stigma and other social barriers can exist to make uh make things more difficult for people of colour to access mental health care. Um and I know that Kathleen touched on that a little bit earlier. Um so my question is what do you think services should do to address those inequalities and what role do you think co production will play in doing so? So I think that co production is the key i think that i remember when um the nhs was asked to provide five thousand new counselors for depression and it you know it couldn't it couldn't be done so yeah like i I think it's about lived experience so for the listeners benefit co-production is referring to when someone with lived experience of accessing mental health services is part of the process of uh basically shaping what those services look like uh in the future that's basically what co-production is yeah but but i i was actually going further than that mina Mm -hmm. i was going further than that i think that people with lived experience should be part of teams yeah that um but when when you do the single point of access or the first port of call that i think that they should be there um in 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 all aspects to be honest with you if you could have them on call at emergency accident in the emergency department etc i really think that that would be a step for a step forward i think i think i think that the experience of people should be used to to, to help you know and it wouldn't take anything away from any services i think it would add and that way that's how you could you you could bring in people of color because um in everything that i've seen you know there is there is institutional racism it's gonna it's gonna take a while to get to get rid of and there are still those prejudices and things with you know within the system and I think that um rather than try and um you know do everything in one go I think that things should be done on a um you know I think I think a number of things should be done all at the same time and one of them is look just bring in someone to you know bring in people to help let them use their expertise right now 
I think it's quite common that uh, white females are kind of really heavily diagnosed with PD, but we need to recognise that that's not the whole story. And co-production needs to be representative of London. And we are a multicultural society in London and elsewhere in in the UK. So for really co-production to work, we need to represent the people that we're trying to help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I absolutely love that you mentioned that because... It is so important, you know, like um, people have issues with with the term BAME, as in B-A-M-E, Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic, because it kind of lumps everyone who's black and brown together under one really big umbrella that feels really cramped. And so, uh, so much of, uh, you know, providing racially competent care is about um, recognising that no two people are going to, uh, require the same type of care and that we really need to tailor things accordingly so I'm really glad you said that um and yeah like I I think co-production should go beyond um kind of uh uh just kind of shaping the services but also as Kathleen said you know being a part of teams because that that's how um you know you really get different results I think and the Sun Project in Hackney which does something very similar um actually has a system like that so i i think those systems really work so yeah absolutely agree over to you danny thank you that was really um interesting to listen to i was getting really into it then um okay so we're going to just move on to training um so reflective practice is something i often advocate in trauma-informed care training for our listeners benefit reflective practice is when mental health care workers have a safe space to reflect upon their cases. So the question I put to you is, what do you see um, of reflective practice for people accessing services and the staff? Why is it important for patients with CEN specifically? So reflective practice is so important just as you did mention in the introduction trauma-informed care because one of the common themes for SEN or PD is that people have experienced trauma um, a lot of it ACEs adverse childhood um, experiences and um, it's really really important for people to reflect on what buttons are being pressed. I think, especially with personality disorder, people, when they're first um, experiencing it or they're, they're in the throes of a crisis, they can really press other people's buttons and, you know, evoke negative responses because they're in that self-destructive pattern. And it's really important to, for themselves to reflect on their behaviour, see where they could have done things differently, other people could have done things differently, you know, really look at their, have some insight into their behaviour and other people's behaviour. And just all round, it's really important um, for reflective practice. I think that we we also we also have to think across i know we're talking about the nhs but we also have to think about the people that come into contact with um people with complex emotional needs and we're talking here about complex mm-hmm. so um we we need to think about the prisons we need to think about the police we need to think about a and e department staff 
we need to think about the court systems we need to think about social workers and and form and, you know the nhs form partnerships because and and have relationships into department and stuff because i've done the knowledge and understanding framework training um the cuff as we call it and we had emergence at the time which was a fantastic organization that was voluntary but you know um then they went there was also um they also used to be a hospital in london called the henderson hospital which is um my daughter 20 years ago was on the waiting list and they closed it they closed tertiary care it was a tertiary care unit but um that closed and that was the only place but i saw i met people through emergence that had actually been at the henderson when I say about the cuff training, the knowledge and understanding framework, when you go on that training, you could be with probation officers, prison officers, you could be with all different people. And we would talk and discuss. And honestly, all the different, you know, the, the different the discussions, it was very spicy. You know, um, all the bits, all the bits were in there because everyone had um, different ex- had had. Well, I'd say the same experiences in different contexts. And we learned so much about triggers and about, you know, and how to how to deal with things and stuff like that. That, yeah. Um, so I think that I think that 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 would be a beneficial thing. And maybe if the NHS was the was the place where it started, you know, um, that 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 would be a really good thing. I just want to say I've just started. I've had my first session of cuff training. I've got two more to go. And what's been so inspiring is the people on the course by nature, by being involved in the training, they're so passionate and compassionate about helping and dealing with people who've got um, SEN or PD. And um, it's just really inspiring that there are people out there that do want to do some really good um, informed work with others. That's brilliant. Um, I'm starting my um, cough training in January. What do you see there as the benefit? You both have got me kind of really getting excited. It's fantastic, honestly. It's really good. Brilliant. That's brilliant. No, thanks. That was really some good points that you you all raised there as well, definitely. Um, And yes, reflective practice is something that I think doesn't go on as much as it should in services, especially mental health services. you know, I've worked in mental health services for very long. I've never had any clinical supervision or. Wow. Um, I so, also yeah. think that sometimes when people have behaved badly and they've actually admitted it to me and they've said, look, Claire, um, OK, so we didn't handle this as well as we could have done. I'm really sorry. Um, won't happen again. I really love working with you. I know this may have kicked you off in some way. I know this may have provoked you. And when people actually have that reflection and insight and admit Okay, so I didn't handle that very well. That's so validating to the other person. Definitely, I agree. I totally agree. You said it, Claire. So some feedback that I've heard from service users with SEN is about alcohol and drug use, something that we've touched on a little bit already. Um, Specifically being turned away from services because of substance misuse. So my question is, how would you like to see services support those with multiple needs, um, such as uh, dealing with substance use as well as a mental health problem? Um, So when we talk about kind of the the, what came first, the substance use or the uh, mental health issue, 
it's kind of a chicken egg situation, maybe, or maybe it's not. Um, so I would really love to hear your thoughts about kind of uh, how the services could better support those with those uh, multiple needs. So I was only made aware of, I think it's called co-occurring or substance misuse. It's also called COMAD. And it's basically where someone's got mental health diagnosis as well as substance abuse. So that could be alcohol or drugs or glue sniffing, um, stuff like that. And I only was really made aware of it um, a year or so ago when I did my LXP training. And one of my colleagues on the course was an expert in um, substance misuse and mental health. And she was just explaining to me how difficult it is because when often when substance abuse, when people are trying to access mental health services, but they're under the influence of drink or drugs, that excludes them from then acting, accessing mental health services. And sometimes when some people are trying to access substance misuse services and addiction services, but they're suffering from mental health, depression, anxiety, or even psychosis, that then excludes them from accessing the substance misuse services. The people are falling through the gaps at a rate of knots um, and I just think it's already a complex problem um, personality disorder but substance misuse, misuse makes it even more complicated um, yeah and just one thing that I learned which I didn't know was you can't if someone comes into the like the emergency department because I've got some colleagues who are actually working as LXPs on ED departments and what we're told is um, when someone comes and presents we can't tell them stop stop drinking or stop doing that job because it could be so dangerous if they just immediately withdraw and there's a very you know complex situation there about brain chemistry and you know, um, and the addiction, and really, there does need to be joined up services, which I don't think there is. Absolutely, yeah, I would agree with you. And um, the thing that this is this is where um, my experience as a carer is perhaps important because when the services say, "Oh, you can't do this and you can't do that," it falls back on the carers and the friends and families um, who 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 do because you know. Uh, yeah thank you for that yeah i mean i um i i remember someone uh that i've worked with who has c and um was talking about you know being sober for a number of days or weeks and you know one of the things that they mentioned was kind of about how their clinician didn't talk about it in their progress note and i think that's a big part of it because we see we see substance uh use as something that we have to punish people for you know people are being punished for um drinking or taking drugs by being excluded from the service so um i would really love to move towards something that is more compassionate and that takes into account the fact that it is often very often a coping mechanism for something something else and yeah why we need kind of a hybrid approach to things being assessed is a key starting point in gaining support for CEM. It has been recommended that an assessment should focus on formulation of a person's presentation, not diagnosis. What are your thoughts? So there's a big debate about this, actually, and I have to admit that I'm sitting on the fence a bit here. Um, I've like um, received no real help, as I was talking before, about access directly from my PD or my SEN. Um, and the label has been, I found, really um, 
stigmatise and uh, like a criticism of my whole self instead of just the word, uh, just an aspect of me. It's kind of like a criticism of everything about me and what do I do with this and how do I move forward? Um, but at the same time, when you're given the diagnosis, then you can then access help and support that maybe you weren't able to access before. So I now get um, benefits, which is amazing. I've got a, a mental health team, which is amazing. I've got the right medication, which, again, is amazing. Um, I'm on, you know, the transformation program with Healthy London Partnership, which is really good. You know, so all of this kind of would maybe have not happened if I hadn't been given this horrible diagnosis. But at the same time, I think it's a really and it's quite in fashion at the moment for people to have spaces where people come and mental health or diagnosis isn't really mentioned. It's more about what are your needs? Are you distressed? Are you in crisis? How can we help you? And that is just so refreshing as well, that people can come and get help and not have to have been through the system to get that um, help that they need. Yeah, no, that that's really informative um, and just making me think about um, when I'd done, I think I'd done it on the first podcast and I mentioned quite a lot about, you know, around hope and that, you know, people with uh, personality and complex emotional needs disorder, that, you know, there is hope out there, you, you know, we can still live a meaningful life and have long term meaningful relationships and definitely just like you Claire I feel that when I got that diagnosis a lot of things changed for me and I'm not really fixated on the diagnosis in that sense but it was all the other support that I got once I had that diagnosis yeah I mean I've I've been lucky enough to just access some compassion focused therapy that I've been having for the past couple of years before that I had um, schematic on the NHS and all of those things wouldn't really have fallen into place had it not been for this horrible label so there is like a a silver a silver um, lining definitely and also um, obviously I'm really passionate about therapeutic optimism and hope because people need to see that they can move past it and they will do it just takes time definitely I'm someone who was always a big learner and I thrive in educational settings so I've always loved psychological education question to yourself is what has been the most helpful intervention you were offered what would you like to see available in all terms across London so just as I was mentioning before um, my schematic therapy on the NHS was about a year, a year and a half, and I've had just over two years now of compassion-focused therapy. Um, so I think it's really important. I think it's very fashionable um, dialectical behavioural therapy and mentalisation-based therapy for PD, but there are other therapies which can really work and be so helpful. Um, I think basically the most fundamental intervention that I had was what's called a support time and recovery worker. And she was working with me consistently for four to five years. And we met up maybe twice a week to begin with, three times a week, and then it went to once a week and then twice a week, um, one, um, twice a month. And it was just um, this relationship was informed psychologically. She was under the supervision of um, a therapist at the time. So I didn't actually realise it until we spoke recently that actually how therapeutically um, focused and minded the relationship had been and how reflective and supervised she'd been. And it was really, really instrumental in me forming a better relationship with some members of my family and also um, being able to have a partner who 
is a long-term partner, something really stable and loving and wonderful, and also have better and um, more long-term relationships with my friends. And just this kind of relationship with my soul worker, it was the thing that saved me, I think. So, yeah, that was my best intervention. Oh, that's lovely. That really is. I'm so happy for you, Claire. I can see you glowing. I can see you glowing when you're <laughs> Oh, that's lovely. Mina, did you want to add anything at all? Or did you want to Yeah, um, I, I mean, I wanted to mention that I love uh, psychoeducation just because there is a sense of, like, understanding what, why I do certain things and um, that there's an evolutionary reason for it. And I think just having that explanation for me is super helpful. Um, and... And also people aren't always informed on things and, you know, especially in this day and age where there's a lot of, you know, medical misinformation more broadly. It is so important for people to be informed um, by the relevant sources and and for that to have a therapeutic impact on people. So I'm really happy that, um, you know, uh, for Claire, there was, you know, an intervention that really because I, I I think that's for me my saving grace was definitely the psychoeducation and understanding why my body does the things that it does why I behave the way that I do um because for me it just put everything into perspective it's like oh that's why so and that that moment of kind of realization was kind of uh, crucial for me and getting me onto a path of recovery. So I completely get where you're coming from on that. Thanks for listening. If you feel triggered by anything you've heard today, please do contact the links within the podcast or seek medical advice.